Romans 1, 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last week we began Romans, and uh, we saw Paul talk to us about his gospel, and then this week he begins what might be the best exposition in all of the Bible uh, about the great problem, the great problem of the world and the great problem of your life, the problem of sin. Uh, this week I was doing my morning devotion, and Marianne has this little book of poems by a man named George Herbert, and uh, I picked up that book. He's a 16th century Anglican priest, and uh, he has a poem called The Agony, and I want to read a portion of it for you as we begin. Listen to what Herbert wrote. Who would know sin? Let him repair unto Mount Olivet. There shall he see a man so wrung with pains that all his hair, his skin, his garments bloody be. Sin is that press and vice which forces pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. Sin is that force and vice which forces pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. That's a really a beautifully poetic summary of the horror of sin. And this morning, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the bad news. Paul gave us good news last week. He said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and it's for anyone, for anyone who believes. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to faith. He told us that the righteousness of God is made known. It's revealed. But now in verse 18, he pauses 
he puts, he taps the brakes on his discussion of the righteousness of God. And Paul is going to pick that back up at the end of chapter three. But for now, he's going to tell us about something else that's been revealed, the wrath of God. He's going to tell us why the righteousness of God is needed. Here, Paul tells us, listen, we need, every one of us, we need the righteousness of God because there is such a thing as the wrath of God. The reason the undeserved gift of the righteousness of God to us, the reason that's good news is because the deserved wrath of God against us is bad news. So today, we're looking at the bad news, and we have to do this if we're going to be faithful to the Bible, but also if we want to understand ourselves and our world and the Lord, because the bad news spotlights the glory of the good news. You can't appreciate the solution that the gospel is unless you appreciate the gravity of the problem of sin. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to see that Paul divides humanity up into three big groups, the irreligious, the moralist, and the religious. And he's going to give the bad news for each of these three types of people. And so today he begins by telling us the bad news for the irreligious. That's what verses 18 through 32 of chapter one are are about. Now, Paul's thinking here is quite condensed in its logic. And so I'm going to outline for you in four points, the meaning of these verses. Okay, here they are. First, we're going to see people reject the clear truth about God. Second, Therefore, people construct counterfeit gods. Therefore, third, God in his wrath gives them over to their idolatry. Therefore, fourth, we see the disintegration. The disintegration of human life. That's our outline. You with me? All right, let's go. Point one, people reject the clear truth about God. We saw 17, Paul speaks about the righteousness of God being revealed. And now in 18, he says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God. Now, you might not like that term. I confess, I don't really like that term. Because when we think about wrath, we tend to think about, well, I tend to think about how angry I can get when Baylor loses a football game. Um, TV remotes haven't been thrown in my house for some time. But I have to confess, in my younger days, that might have happened once or twice. Wrath to us is flying off the handle. It's getting angry. It's being out of control. But that's not what God's wrath is like. God's wrath is his settled opposition towards all that is wrong and evil in his world. It's his settled opposition against everything that's wrong in the world that he made and that he loves. That's why Paul says it's revealed against all what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So how are men ungodly? He tells us they're ungodly in that they, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. So God is full of wrath. God is, God is angry because people suppress the truth. Now, what truth exactly do we suppress? He tells us we suppress the clear truth about God. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is to everyone, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what Paul says is that it is clear that there is a God. There's one God. It's clear that he is the godness 
of God is clear. And that God is powerful is also clear. Where are those things clear? Paul tells us they're clear in the things that have been made. That is, in creation, in our own human conscience. So what Paul's saying, and you need to hear, is that all people, the suburban soccer mom, the atheist professor at Harvard, the Norwegian fisherman, the Pacific Islander who has been unreached by any other people group in his entire life, every single one of those people and every single one of you, deep down, know that there is a God. Everyone knows, deep down, that there is a God. That's what Paul's saying. Marianne and I have watched a couple of episodes of this show on Netflix. I think it's called something like World's Greatest Houses, World's Most Amazing Homes, something like that. You can search for it. It's a cool show. And in one episode, uh, this guy who's uh, an architect and his companion, they go visit this house that has, it looks like it's literally been like carved out of the rock of a mountain. It is stunningly beautiful. There's trees everywhere and a beautiful mountain in the background and then this incredibly beautiful home that just seamlessly fits with its landscape and its surroundings. Um, You know what no one does in that episode? No one assumes or even thinks for a minute that that house was formed out of erosion over millions of years randomly. In fact, what they actually do is they ask to speak with the architect. They see this amazing home and they they want to know who designed it, who built that. They know intuitively that someone has to be behind that. And the someone who is behind this house is immensely skilled and immensely creative. And Paul's saying here that we know when we look at this world that behind it is a beautiful designer, an artist who planned it. But Paul says, we ignore, we suppress that truth. We pretend in innumerable ways that the God who is there is not. We suppress the truth about God. The trick, though, is that no one can suppress the truth about God successfully. We can't live in God's world without using God's gifts. Imagine that someone enters into a debate and his aim is to prove that there is no such thing as air. There's no such thing as air, but in order to make his arguments, he has to use the very thing which his arguments are denying. We do the same thing with God all the time. We might say there is no God, or if there is a God, he's not good or powerful, all the while using things like logic and emotions, gifts that he's given us. So people suppress the clear truth that God exists and that he's powerful and that he's worthy of worship. That's bad news. It's bad news because in verse 20, Paul says, everyone is rendered without excuse. Jewish people who knew God's law are without excuse, but Paul says that non-Jewish people, Gentiles, are, are without excuse because they know God by his general revelation of himself. Don't miss that. It's bad news that no one has an excuse. No one has an excuse to reject God, not your chemistry teacher who doesn't buy the proofs of his existence, not your neighbor who feels like church is a bunch of hypocrites. No one 
Everyone knows God because he has made himself known from the beginning in his world. Therefore, secondly, therefore, people construct counterfeit gods. So people all by nature, they suppress the truth we read. They suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. We attempt in futility to reject and ignore God, all the while living in his world. But here's the catch. All of us are made by God in a certain way. All of us are made by God to be worshipers. We're a, uh, we're a telescopic people. We all have a telos, a goal, an ends. All of our hearts are unchangeably oriented towards giving something or someone praise and service and adoration. We can't not worship. So what does that mean? Here's what Paul's saying. Well, because people reject the one true God and ignore him in his world, because they don't worship the one that is worthy of it and that they were made to worship, but because they have to worship something, we construct idols. We construct counterfeit gods to worship. Look at verse 23. People exchanged, he writes, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, etc., etc., Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's the point. Listen, here's the point. Every single person in this room, every single person in San Antonio, every single person alive on earth right now has something or someone that they are worshiping. Every single one of you have something or someone that your heart is bending towards like metal to a magnet. That's why the theologian John Calvin 500 years ago said that all of our hearts are idol factories. Do you know what the best illustration of that is? The ring of power. (laughs) The ring of power. Sauron's ring in the Lord of the Rings is the central thematic device of the story. And, and what is the deal with Sauron's ring? If you haven't read the books, shame on you, side note. But if you haven't read the books, uh, you should know that the ring corrupts anyone who tries to use it. The ring corrupts anyone who tries to use it, no matter how good his or her intentions are. Because the ring is designed to, to take the fondest desires of the human heart and to, to amplify those desires. To amplify those desires to these idolatrous levels. That's why characters like Gandalf, good characters, refuse to touch the ring. He says, no, Frodo, don't tempt me. Another side note there, sorry, I got a little too into it. Uh, Gandalf, is in, he doesn't want the ring, even though he would try to use the ring to, you know, to liberate slaves or to preserve his people's land or to execute justice. He would try to do good things, but the ring, you see, the ring would make him or anyone else who uses it, willing to do anything, anything to achieve his or her goals. The ring turns a good thing into an absolute thing. And that absolute thing overturns every other allegiance or value that the person has. So the wearer of the ring becomes increasingly enslaved to it, increasingly addicted to it, because they can't any longer live without it. That's what Paul's saying we're like in our hearts. What is the world like? according to Romans 1. What are you like apart from Jesus and his grace to you, according to Romans 1? 
The world is full of people chasing after their objects of worship. The world is full of people pursuing and bowing down to their self-made counterfeit gods. What are you chasing after? That's not me asking you that. I want you to hear the Holy Spirit through this text ask you, what do you most want? What will you give up everything else for? What are you building your life around? Look at how you spend your time. Look at how you spend your money. Look at what your mind dwells on in your down moments. The point is that all of us are serving something or someone with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The effect of our rejection of God is a persistent, pervasive pursuit of counterfeit gods, of something or someone who can fill the longings, the longings that we all have, the longings given to us by God himself. So, what does God do? Or, how does God's wrath against our pervasive idolatry, against our persistent rejection of him, how does that show up in the here and now? Third, Did you notice that the verb in verse 18 is present tense? That's important. The wrath of God is being revealed presently from heaven. Now, the Bible speaks of God's wrath as something that will come at the last day at the day of judgment. But in this text, the Bible talks about the wrath of God being something revealed now. So, So how? How is God's wrath being revealed now? And this is the key to the passage this morning. Here's what Paul's saying. The wrath of God is revealed in the here and now in that he gives to us what we want the most. God gives us what we most want. And do you know what that is? A life without him in it. A historian that I love to read once said, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. The history of the world is the judgment of the world. That's what Romans 1 teaches. Where do we see that? Well, Notice, Paul uses that phrase, therefore God gave them up. Did you see that? Three times, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. And notice each time the phrase is used in response to something. There's a therefore in verse 24, a for this reason in verse 26, and a since in verse 28. What Paul's saying is that God's wrath, his righteous hostility against all that's wrong in his world, is revealed against the ungodliness of men by giving to them what they want most. God gives us the idols we chase after. Verse 24, he gave them over to the lusts. That word really means desires, the deep desires of their hearts. That's really a profound concept. Think with me about this, okay? When we think about the wrath of God, maybe you've been around church, you probably are used to preachers saying, America is so sexually immoral, God's going to send a tornado and wipe us all out. Or there's going to be an economic catastrophe because God is judging America for their evil and wickedness. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that the wrath of God now, God's ongoing judgment against our rejection of him, is found precisely in his not intervening. In his not jumping in, to use that illustration again, our sexual immorality 
is God's wrath. Our rejection of him and the consequences involved therein are God's wrath. He lets men and women go their own way. John Stott, the pastor, uh, puts it like this. God abandons stubborn sinners to their willful self-centeredness. God judges the world by giving the world over to their selfish desires. He takes his hand off the wheel and he lets us drive. He he says, all right, you want to be in charge? You want a world without me? Go for it. Let's see how that goes for you. Indulge in your deepest desires and appetites. I mean, you can think about this with me, right? You can understand this if you think about it just in terms of being a parent, being a father. Even if you're not a parent, you can understand this because you've had parents, I love my kids. My kids are great kids. They're normal, happy, healthy, 10, 9, and 7-year-olds. But if I removed all restraint, let's be honest, we're not just talking about 10-year-olds. We're talking about any of us. If I removed all restraints and said, kids, do whatever you want. Oreos are for lunch. Oreos every meal. Thank you for your yay. Xbox. 12 hours a day, 8 to 5, then some Oreo dinner and more Xbox. No school, that's for dang sure. No work, that's for sure. And of course, we know, and really they know, none of these things would be for their good. Those things would lead them down a bad path, an Oreo crumb riddled bad path. Restraint, in a sense, on the part of parents, is an act of love. So God is saying that his judgment against those who reject him is to let them eat all the Oreos and see what happens. You might understand this. In another way as parents, when your kids perhaps say to you, I don't want any part of you, mom and dad. Y'all are unfair to me. I'm leaving. Sometimes a wise parenting strategy might be to say, all right, let's see how that goes. Head on out. Uh, Call me in three days, and let's see if you're still alive, right? (laughs) On the streets. How are you going to provide for yourself? Where are your clothes going to be? We understand that, right? So, So can we pause here for a minute? And can you listen to me? Can you listen to me? Listen. All the things that you want most. All the things you long for most in this life. Even things that might be good, but that you want too much. Those things are all going to fail you. All the things you long for are going to fail you. They're all going to let you down. They're never, ever going to pay back what they promise you. It's not true. It is not true that if you get more money, you're going to be happy and satisfied. You're built for more than that. It is not true that if your children have amazing athletic or academic success or whatever you want for your children, that you are going to be happy and satisfied. You were built for more than that. It is not true that if your spouse finally begins to meet all of your sexual needs or emotional needs or relational needs, you will finally be satisfied. That is not true. You were built for more. But people don't believe that. You and me, in our weak moments, apart from the Holy Spirit, do not believe that. We don't believe that our idols can't really satisfy, and so we keep chasing after them. That's the way this world works. So what happens? Well, they fail us again and again. But like some sort of pathetic, rejected lover... We keep going back. Some of you know what that's like in a very visceral way. You struggle with substance abuse, maybe. You know it's not going to satisfy you. But you don't know what else to do, so you keep at it. You've been unfaithful to your spouse. 
You know the horrible pain and the crushing shame and guilt that attend that. But eventually you find yourself trapped in an idolatrous pattern and, and you keep going back to that dry well to get filled. You've been in positions of power and received professional accolades and you still feel empty inside, whether you're by yourself at night or in a room full of people because you don't know what else to do. So you keep pushing and working yourself into oblivion. The wrath of God is writ large over all of our pursuits and passions that don't connect with the living God. And what happens to our world as a result? Last point. We see the disintegration. The disintegration of human life. I mean, look at what Paul says. Marianne read it. It's very clear. Because God gives us over to what we most want, a life without him, things fall apart. Our life disintegrates. Our culture disintegrates. Paul shows us the the gravity of a world that has been given just what they want, life without God in it. I mean, look at how he lays it out. He says that we see the disintegration of human sexuality. There's a dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. There's dishonorable, dishonorable passions. You know, one of the greatest gifts that God gives is the gift of sexuality. A close and intimate physical, spiritual, emotional connection between a husband and the wife. Yet we want sex on our own terms. That's always been one of the most famous idols and it still is today and will be until Jesus comes back. So God lets us go. And what's the result? Sexual perversion, sexual abuse, sexual deviancy, pornography, sex slavery, pedophilia, adultery, homosexuality, a disintegration of human sexuality, a horrific misfire, a misusing of our own and one another's bodies. Side note, I know this is controversial. Uh, I know that that's not popular. If you want to hear more about this particular topic, you can listen to my sermon that I preached in May or June on God and sexuality. But we see a disintegration of human sexuality. Second, we see a a disintegration of human emotional life. Look at verse 30. He says, we're filled with bleh. That's my interpretation there, uh, that Luke translation. We're filled with bleh, all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. Have you ever wondered in a moment of serene honesty? Have you ever wondered, why do I always feel like such a grump? Like so irritated, so frustrated, so angry. Why when I wake up, am I so greedy and selfish? Why? It's because the things that you're worshiping can't give you what you most need. Lastly, we see a disintegration of human relationships. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. No one is off the hook, Paul says. So let's close with this. Why does God do all this? Why does God show us wrath? Why is God angry? God exposes us to the disintegration. God exposes us to the disintegration of our sin for one reason, so that we will return to him. His mercy comes before his wrath. His grace precedes his anger. God 
exposing us to a world without him is it's like a bucket of cold water hitting you in the face when you've been in a stupor. Remember in The Princess Bride when, uh, when Inigo Montoya is depressed and in a drunken stupor and Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant, comes and he finds him in the village and he picks him up and he grabs him. Remember what he does? He gets a bucket of cold water and he gets a bucket of hot water and he grabs Inigo. Boom, cold water, boom, hot water, boom, cold water, boom, hot water, until Inigo comes to himself. It's not that unlike what God is doing in this world. He's trying to force you to see that nothing can change the darkness of who you are. Nothing can fill the hole in your heart. Nothing and no one except for God except for who God is for you in Jesus Christ. God's anger, as Paul will tell us next week, is meant to lead you to repentance. It's his kindness to you. Without understanding the gravity of sin, you'll never see the power of his redeeming love in the righteousness of God given to us for free in the gospel. You'll never rejoice enough in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you free of charge unless you can stare point blank into the darkness of your hearts. So Paul forces you to stare. When Marianne and I were serving uh, at a church in Tucson a number of years ago now, uh, there was a family in that church who had a son who kind of grew up in the youth group in the church. And once he got out of high school and started doing his own thing, he, he fell into a lot of trouble. He, he became addicted to hardcore street drugs, bad stuff. And his parents would work with him again and again. And we would pray for him regularly. And it just never got any better. It never did. And finally, his, his parents had to make a hard decision, a decision I hope I never have to make as a parent. They had to make the decision really to let him go. To, to give him over to his addiction. And, and I remember this vividly as a pastor. One night, I got a call from the senior pastor, and he told me that these parents had found their son drugged out, strung out, asleep in a downtown playground, not knowing where he was, not knowing who his parents were. And I want you to think about that story, and then let me ask you this question. What did those parents want? Do they want to punish their son? No. They want him to come to his senses. They want him to come home. They want him to return. What do you think God wants in giving the world that he made over to its own idolatry? He wants it to come back to him. He wants in his forbearance and patience to lead us into his kindness. You see, the heart of God is for you, and it's for you to see where your sin brings you. It's for you to have a moment of complete disillusionment with the path you've chosen and, and to come home. He wants you to know that he welcomes you home, no matter what, no matter who you are, through Jesus. To, he wants you to know that it's by grace that you've been saved. For whose sake did Jesus hang on the cross? For your sake. For your sake, Jesus became sin. For your sake, out of love, Jesus was burdened with suffering and shame. For your sake, for your life, he was nailed to the tree. God wants you to realize the real darkness he's saving you from in Jesus. He wants you to sit and simmer 
in the bad news so that you can rejoice in the good. Can you? Will you?